Hello and welcome to this New Year's edition of the Amy and Flo Talking Magazine show. It is January 2021 and there's only me in the studio today. I'm flying solo thanks to our COVID restrictions here in Northern Ireland and an abundance of sensible caution around the virus. It's just me. So big shout out to my mum, Flo, who I know is listening at home in Larne, County Antrim. I hope you enjoy this edition of the show. What better way to start off the new year? them with a quiz to test you and even though mum's not here she has provided me with five fiendish questions so here we go the first quiz of the new year question one friday the 12th of february is the chinese lunar new year which of the following animals represents 2021 is it a the rabbit b the goat or c the ox what is the animal of the Chinese New Year which starts in February? A rabbit, a goat or an ox? Question 2. What ancient civilization started the tradition of New Year's resolutions? Was it A. The Romans, B. The Babylonians or C. The Aztecs? Who started New Year resolutions? Romans, Babylonians or Aztecs? Question 3. At the time of Christ's birth, January the 6th, known as the Feast of the Epiphany, three wise men visited him. One was Melchior, another Balthazar. What was the third called? Was it A. Bashir, B. Jasper, or C. Gasper? What was the name of the third wise man? Bashir, Jasper or Gasper? Question 4. Which foodstuff is thought to be unlucky to eat in the new year? Is it A. Pork, B. Lobster or C. Black-eyed peas? Which foodstuff is thought to be unlucky at new year? Pork, lobster or black-eyed peas? And the final question. What famous novel was published on January the 1st, 1818? Was it A. Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, B. The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, or C. Dracula by Bram Stoker? Which novel was published on the 1st of January, 1818? Frankenstein, The Picture of Dorian Gray, or Dracula? We'll come back at the end of the podcast when I can tell you what the answers are. I've got a few animal stories in this edition for New Year, but the first one I'm going to tell you was from the BBC and it's called, Was I Wrong to Fall for a Cheating Cat? There's a well-known saying that goes, you don't choose a cat, a cat chooses you. So what should you do, asks Anissa Sudabar, when a persistent pussycat in the neighbourhood decides to adopt you. For me, it began about 18 months ago. 
one long hot summer evening when two huge wanting eyes accompanied by serenading mews appeared at the kitchen door. It didn't recall when I approached it. In fact, it appeared quite pleased when I began speaking in ridiculously high-pitched baby speak. Imagine the word cheeky face being used, nor did it flinch when I softly stroked behind its grey fluffy ears. Instead, it lay on its back and allowed me to feel the softness of its white belly fur and loudly purred in gratitude. In appreciation that my affections were returned, I opened a can of tuna, which it hastily scoffed and left. I didn't think anything of it at the time, other than that it was a cosy exchange, a summer, summer memory made and I had performed a good deed. A few days later, the cat returned and we behaved like two long-lost friends. There was a mutual loving petting and nuzzles. I gave it, gave it some more food. It noisily ate and we parted ways again. The meeting soon became a daily occurrence and something I find myself looking forward to. The cat had taken to coming into the house, napping on the sofa and didn't mind being put out for the night when I went to bed. My evenings were now gloriously cosy. The stresses of the day instantly dissolved when the cat and I would curl up together to watch television in the evenings. In retrospect, I should have stopped to think whether the cat, though apparently in need of food and affection, lived with someone else, but I didn't. That only came later. After a couple of months, I bought a pet bed for the cat to relax in and dedicated bowls for food and water. I would go to work, discover cat hair on my clothes and smile in anticipation of being together in the evenings. Photos of the cat would appear on my social media. Colleagues at work would notice my online activity and ask, how's your cat? And I would answer as if the cat was mine, in denial about my new status as a catnapper. Every time another new post would go up, a friend would regularly call me out in my comments. It's not your cat. A quick internet search for the hashtag not my cat revealed that I was part of a club. There were other people just like me, people enjoying the benefits of a cat but with none of the responsibilities of an owner. There are shiny, beautiful, clandestine pictures and vlogs of humans and felines that don't officially belong together. So is it normal? I do feel cats live on their own terms. I don't think they are deliberately deciding I'm going to manipulate this human. It's much more straightforward, says cat behaviour counsellor Cecilia Hadden. They find somewhere where they have food and warmth as a friendly human and try to stay there. The one thing about cats is they're enormously persistent. If you can have an animal that can wait for hours outside a mouse hole waiting for a mouse, then you've got an animal who can wait at a door if it wants to move in for hours as well. Much later, I discovered there's a book about this. Originally published, published in 1990, Six Dinner Sid is a children's book that tells the story of a cat called Sid that lives at number one Aristotle Street, 
but Sid also lives at all the other houses on the street and eats at all the homes, whose owners all believe Sid belongs to them. Unlike the real cats described by Celia Haddon, Sid knows very well what he is doing, but his manipulative plans unravel when he gets sick and the neighbours discover they're all being played. Arthur Inga Moore tells me it was based on a black cat when she lived in North London. I heard someone call him by a name that sounded like Sid, she says. In fact, his name was Ziggy. Sid used to come in through the cat flap and make himself at home in number four where I was living. I think his home was actually number six. Sid in the book was very much like Sid in real life and he was the inspiration for the story which is of course made up. I've had many cat visitors over the years and I've always enjoyed their company. Apparently they have developed an ability to communicate with human beings in a way they don't with other cats. They know how to get what they need from us by wheedling and charming. It makes us love them and makes them special. Joanna Lodge from the UK's largest feline welfare charity, Cats Protection, says scientists have speculated that it's cats' eyes, reminiscent of the large eyes of a baby, that help them win our hearts. This would explain a lot my need to infantilise my speech and my instinct to feed the cat, gush with love and provide shelter. My maternal instincts came pouring out, along with my dignity. But in the months that followed our first meeting, I became ever more aware of a growing sense of guilt. I would look on websites for lost cats, wondering whether I would find an appeal from the cat's owner, but find nothing. I would be lying if I said I wasn't disappointed. Then my affair came to a sudden end. The cat vanished. I waited days and nights and crawled into the, crawled into the sad abyss of my suburban garden. I felt bereft and abandoned and started scarring the internet again for news. Surely the only reason the cat had stopped visiting was because it had been run over? It was probably lying in a ditch somewhere, but there was no news. I would look sadly at the empty bed where it had lain, the untouched footballs and the strands of fur on my clothes that were now becoming scarce. Then, in the first weeks of the spring lockdown, I had a chance conversation with my neighbour over the garden fence. I casually, though very deliberately, mentioned the cat and was told the owners had moved. So it did have owners. I probably shouldn't have been surprised. I was filled with feelings of relief, followed by betrayal and confusion. How could they just take the cat out of my life? I walked around the corner and looked longingly at the empty house that had once housed the cat, but it was now devoid of life. I wasn't going to give up without a fight. It was unimaginable that the cat, who was once so satisfied with me, would be as happy with its owner in a new home far away. I emailed the owner via the estate agent and explained how the cat and I had spent a significant amount of time together 
And if it didn't settle in the new abode and they were perhaps looking to rehouse the cat, then I would be more than happy to be a permanent alternative. It seemed to me that we belonged together, I wrote, and that our friendship had been forcefully terminated without our consent, or something like that. The owner replied to my email. His name was David. He explained that he owned two cats, a brown tabby called Henry and Eddie, a silver tabby who was often away for days. They had moved 120 miles away to Lincolnshire, he wrote. The cats love the semi-rural environment, are very happy here and enjoy us now being with them all day, he added. Naturally, we could not bear to part with them. He suggested that I should get my own cat. There are pedigree cats of the British short hair breed. You should be able to find a breeder and they are as delightful as kittens as you would imagine. At the time it was inconceivable to even think about another cat Eddie had chosen me. In a follow-up email to David I confessed the full extent of my involvement in Eddie's disappearance. I was filled with remorse. David told me that Eddie's absences had been deeply distressing. We didn't know if he'd been knocked down or stolen, was locked in somewhere or just on the prowl having adventures, he wrote. We knew that Eddie would occasionally disappear for more than 24 hours. Usually this coincided us with us spending a few days away. We would have a friend come in to feed the cats and make a fuss of them, but it became common that we would return to a house without Eddie. The truth is that each time it happened, you wonder if you will ever see him again. We got to the point that we would avoid going away. I recognised the pain of a missing cat, half wishing Eddie had never appeared in my life a year earlier. I deleted all the social media posts of the cat, I felt terrible. I asked David if he was annoyed that I had contacted him to explain what happened. And he replied, we recognise the pain that you and your family are feeling at having lost a cat that had become very precious to you and felt sympathy rather than annoyance. There was also some relief to finally understand what he had been doing and that he had not been suffering cold and alone. Then he told me that it was one thing to make a fuss of a cat when it visits your garden and another thing to feed it. He urged me to stop doing this. We might have even reached an agreement whereby you could have fed them both at our house if we went away, he wrote. But do not encourage a cat to stay away from home. It's very distressing for the owners when it's happening and perhaps even more so for the adopted family if the owners move. Some cats are clearly feral and wild and they won't let you near them. But if they're quite friendly, then it, that will be a good, good clue that they have an owner at some point or that they do still have an owner, says Joanna Lodge. Her organisation, Cats Protection, provides paper colours that you attach to a cat if you aren't sure whether it has a home. They have, do I belong to you, written on them and this alerts the owner if there is one that someone is concerned. There are different different responsibilities, Joanna says. I think one is for the owner to make sure their cat can be identified by a microchip. 
and for anyone who has a cat in the garden, they should try and find out if it's got an owner or can contact us and we can make efforts to find the owners. In the latter case, it's a legal responsibility, she says, as it would be if you came across some lost property. You can't just take it for yourself. As the days got shorter and this year started drawing to a close, David's words about getting a cat resonated hard. I hadn't realised how much I needed the comfort of something purry and furry on my lap to soothe me during a time of such uncertainty. So in anticipation of a winter of discontent, a few weeks ago I picked up a 12-week-old British shorthair. He's the colour of a latte and goes by the name of Horace. I really don't plan to share Horace with anyone, but as I've learned, that might not be entirely my decision. So if you see him around, you know what to do. That's a story from um, from the BBC and that really resonated with me. One, because um, my mum's cat, called Kitty, um, went missing for a very long time. Um, last year, I think it was last year, and we were all really worried about it. And like that writer, absolutely convinced that the cat had been knocked over and that we would never see her again. And then one day... It was discovered that she had been locked into a vacant neighbour's house and she'd been locked in for nine full days. No idea what she ate or drank while she was there, but as soon as the door was opened, the cat really happily sauntered back through the door into my mum's house. Well, I said we had a few pet stories. And this next one my mum sent to me that tickled both of our fancies. It's by Podrick Flanagan for the Mail on Sunday. And it's called, Is He From Mogskow? The Mystery of a Russian Cat. It is a mystery worthy of espionage novelist John le Carre. A Russian found wandering the streets of an English port with an implanted microchip who refuses to give up his secrets. But this unexplained arrival detained in Southampton is a cat, thought to have been living wild in the city for more than six months, 2,000 miles from his homeland. Rescuers say the long-haired feline, given the temporary name of Ivan, may have made the incredible journey on his own as a stowaway in a lorry or in a container on a ship. Now the charity Cat's Protection is making a public appeal in case he's missing from the home of a family who have recently moved to Britain and can be reunited in time for Christmas. A couple from the Netley area of Southampton found Ivan, thought to be three years old, in October near their home and sheltered them from the freezing weather. But they had to call in cats protection when their own cats became fearful of the foreign interloper. The charity staff discovered Ivan had been implanted with a microchip that showed he had travelled from Russia, but the device did not give an exact address. The cat was transferred to the charity's adoption centre on the Isle of Wight, where he's being quarantined. Volunteer Tony Coster, 72, said he's a really lovely cat. He has those beautiful orange eyes and fluffy brown fur, which maybe keeps him warm during the Siberian winters. 
We haven't really heard him meow, but perhaps he meows with a Russian accent, so English cats just won't understand him. Sarah Elliott, veterinary officer at Cats Protection, said animals from overseas have been known to arrive as stowaways, but there's often a more mundane reason behind foreign strays. The most likely reason that cats come into our care with foreign microchips is that people have emigrated with their cats to the UK and once they get here, the cat strays from home, she said. And here's the final of our trio of stories about animals. This one from the Irish News back on the 18th of December. It says, A man's claim for damages after being bitten by a police dog has been dismissed. Reasonable force was used when a police dog bit a man running from the scene of a crashed car, the High Court ruled yesterday. A judge found that Stephen Cameron ignored warnings issued after being discovered in the grounds of Shane's Castle estate in Antrim. Mr Cameron alleged the animal, called Eros, attacked him for up to five minutes during his detention in the early hours of February the 3rd, 2014. But dismissing his claim for damages, Mr Justice McFarlane described his account as implausible and held that the dog's handler acted proportionally. He said, there's a strong public interest in apprehending drivers who crash cars at night, damage property and leave the scene of the accident. Quite right. The accident happened after Mr Cameron had spent the previous day at his stepbrother's house with alcohol allegedly consumed. He told the court that as he drove home to Rathkyle in Antrim, he swerved to avoid a pheasant on the castle road. The car spun across the carriageway, went through a fence and crashed into a wall at the castle estate. According to Mr Cameron's version of events, he sought help before heading back through trees and undergrowth toward the vehicle. Meanwhile, a mobile police patrol had discovered the crashed car, with checks revealing it had no tax or MOT certificate. Officers called for the PSNI dog team to attend the scene amid concerns the driver may be lying injured. Mr Cameron claimed that as he returned, a large dog suddenly jumped over the wall and ran at him. Fearing for his safety, he turned and fled, but was brought down by a bite to the leg. The animal continued to bite him as officers tried to break its hold. It was alleged. However, the handler testified that he had heard movement in the estate grounds and shouted for the person to identify themselves. On receiving no response, he issued repeated warnings that a police dog was present and only released it after the figure fled. Eros caught Mr Cameron by the calf, then obeyed an order to release him within 30 seconds, according to police. He was taken back to the road, given first aid and arrested on suspicion of being under the influence. The car keys had allegedly been discarded when detained but were located by the dog six to ten feet away. Rejecting Mr Cameron's version of events and claim for negligence, 
the judge cited his alleged alcohol consumption the previous day and how he had been awaiting sentence for a separate offence of driving while unfit. Throwing the car keys away when apprehended was clear evidence of his state of mind at the time, as he was trying to avoid the appearance of a direct link to having driven the car, he said. Instead, he held the police evidence indicated a highly trained officer and a highly trained dog working as a team. It is inconceivable that Eros would be released roadside, directed over the wall without warnings uttered, and then deployed beyond the wall without any handler control, he said. Ruling on the balance of probabilities, he found that the plaintiff refused to identify himself and ran away despite escalating warnings. Just goes to show that you should not mess with a police dog as if you were in any doubt. So for those of you that have been tuning into our podcast for the last few editions, you'll know that I've been looking into other places called Belfast around the world. And I was looking into the different Belfasts across the United States over the last um, week or two and really struggling to find information about lots of the Belfasts. Some of them are so tiny that there's absolutely nothing to say about them. Some of them are ghost towns. Other ones just comprise of the remains of a a post office and some railway tracks now. Um, So when I came across Belfast in Virginia, um, I did a bit of research and what I came up with was a blog written by a guy called Brad Scott. It's an award-winning blog that he does called By the Waters of Possum Creek and it's all about different places that he's lived and he looks into the history of places and different um, traditions associated with them and one of the places he lived was Belfast in Virginia. So I took um I took a great liberty and just lifted Brad Scott's post from his By the Waters of Possum Creek blog. He wrote this one back in 2017. It says The itinerancy of the United Methodist Church requires us to go and live places where the churches are located to which we're appointed by the bishop of our annual conference. My first itineracy was to a place that was served by the Cedar Bluff, Virginia Post Office, but the community had its own name, Belfast. A friend of mine recently travelled to Ireland and I told him he could stay right here in southwest Virginia and within about two hours travel to both Belfast and Dublin. These communities were named after their counterparts in the Green Island. I came to Belfast in 1989. It was much as it is today, except the main road, US Highway 19, was only two lanes. Belfast starts about where the Taswell County-Russell County line is and goes south to a spot where a long decline leads to the neighbouring community of Rosedale. It lies between the Clinch Mountains to the east and the House and Barn Mountains to the west. It's a beautiful green valley watered by a strong stream that comes out of Clinch Mountain. The community was once centred on what is now a back road where there was once a mill. The advent of the 9-11 service 
brought the need to name roads, and one of the roads is called Belfast Mills Road to honour this old community. The mill was placed along this creek and used the water therein to power the milling work. A lot of Scots-Irish descendant people, the hills and hollers around Belfast. An old family named Duff settled on one track that now faces the northbound land of US 19 in a beautiful bottom. Upon discovering this tract, they felt so at home, they had emigrated from Ireland, that they called the place Belfast after the Ulster capital. The name stuck and people found a great identity. A Ferguson family member once told me that there was a slave auction block located a little south of the old mill on the road that parallels the Clinch Mountain Range. At one time, the agricultural efforts of the people of Belfast was focused on raising wheat and other crops. They produced quite a bit of wheat and were recognised for the quality of the crop. In the green hills surrounding the tillable lands, they pastured cows, sheep and horses. They have been known to raise some fine beef cattle on these beautiful hills. Across from the Belfast Elementary School lies a hill that is said to have been the site where a camp meeting was held for many years. This camp meeting was organised by Methodist preachers and led to the organisation of a permanent congregation or two in the area. At one time the Belfast circuit of the Methodist Church had about nine churches on it serviced by one circuit reading riding preacher. The Belfast Church was established in the 1880s and others not long afterwards. Sometimes these church houses doubled as schools in the days of subscription schools. Community members would pull their funds and hire a teacher to teach their kids. Eventually a school was built across from the Belfast Church and a parsonage was also erected nearby, all funded by the locally famous Governor Stewart. The parsonage was built in the second decade of the 1900s, about 1912 if I remember correctly, and one of the interesting tales I encountered while serving Belfast was that of the Taylor family. In the 1920s and 30s, a famous, the famous Carter family, A.P., Sarah and Mother Maybell, were recording music that became the origin of country music. A.P. Carter is said to have found his way to Belfast, where the Eva and Alma Taylor family sang My Old Clinch Mountain Home to him. According to local tradition, A.P. Carter then recorded the song and never gave the Taylors the credit for it. The Taylors were still a little upset about AP's actions in the 1980s. The Belfast community used to sponsor a country music concert on the hills around Bob's Barbecue and Country Store in the decade before I got there. They'd quit by the time I came, but pictures were posted inside Bob's store. He used to serve lamb barbecue sandwiches that were so good you had to have another. So there's a recommendation if you're ever in Belfast, Virginia. One day I was in there getting one when a nice lady named Elaine Keane asked me if I'd like to meet somebody. She had in mind a single young lady she knew and as I was a single young man, I was actively looking. In fact, 
my mother had called the man I replaced and asked if there were any loose, I think she meant unspoken for women in the area. You can imagine how that went over and how fast it spread. I later met and eventually married Tammy Beavers, who moved with me after we married into the historic parsonage at Belfast. Belfast was the place where I met Walter and Amanda Cox. These two lovely people were in their 90s when they passed away. I visited their humble log home several times and got to know and love them. When they died, they each had instructed their family that they wanted to be treated the way people were traditionally treated in the mountains of Russell County and, as it turns out, pretty much traditionally treated in Belfast in Northern Ireland as well. That is, they wanted to be laid out at the church for two nights and have their funeral on the third day. This was a mountain tradition I was not familiar with, but it was a beautiful way to observe their passing as stories were told and people connected as they visited the family and honoured the Coxes, just like we do here. Belfast was also where, and here we get back to animals, Belfast was also where my dog showed up. There used to be a trash collection area at the bottom of the hill where the Belfast Road met Highway 19. It kind of attracted stray animals. One day I noticed a German shepherd in the neighbourhood. She eventually took up residence on my porch and during thunderstorms at the basement steps. I eased around until I could feed and pet her. She eventually adopted me. I was preaching on the first Sunday of October on Lazarus and the rich man. I said something like, we need to look for Lazarus in our world and reach out in mercy to him. After church, my lay leader, David Hankins, a living legend, said, preacher, there's Lazarus. He was pointing to my newfound friend, the German shepherd, and her name was Lazarus from that day forward. I got to scale the utmost heights of House and Barn Mountain while I was there. It was a beautiful place to view the surrounding countryside. The back roads around Belfast take you to a different age, a beauty that is stark but deeply moving. I'm really thankful to have been able to meet this place and sojourn among its people. Well, I hope Brad Scott would forgive me for lifting that um, so completely from his blog by the waters of Possum Creek. Um, I just thought it'd give a really nice insight into another Belfast so far away from where we are here in Northern Ireland, but with so such similarities to some of the things we experience here and um, some of the, the traditions and the way that we behave as well. And if you're interested in following up more about um, life in North America, Mum sent me this story from the Irish News um, that was published in December. It's uh, about something called the Bad Bridget podcast. The story says, a new five-episode podcast series exploring the history and stories of criminal and deviant Irish women in North America has been launched by Queen's University Belfast and Ulster University, featuring Siobhan McSweeney, who plays Sister Michael in Derry Girls, 
the podcast episodes look at different aspects of life for Irish women who emigrated to North America between 1838 and 1918, including alcohol, poverty, pregnancy, motherhood outside marriage and sex work. The final episode features Irish women who were convicted of murder, one of whom, Lizzie Halliday from County Antrim, was dubbed the worst woman on earth for her crimes. The Bad Bridget podcast is based on the Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project of the same name, led by Dr Leanne McCormick from UU and Dr Elaine Farrell from Queen's University Belfast, which focuses on the sexually deviant women, the bad mother and the criminal Irish woman from Boston, New York and Toronto. Compiled over five years, the research shows that while Irish women have been largely written out of the history of their adopted lands, they were often sent across the Atlantic alone, sometimes as young as the age of 11, and the money they sent back was a key resource for Irish families. We hope that bringing to light untold stories of bad Bridgets shows the diverse experiences Irish girls and women had in North America, Dr Farrell said. Dr McCormick set out explorers how gender, age, ethnicity and prejudice played a role in their stories. The Bad Bridget podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify at www.qub.ac.uk forward slash research forward slash podcasts, forward slash bad hyphen Bridget. We had a story earlier about how one bad guy was apprehended by a well-behaved and enthusiastic police dog. I've got another story here from Guardian Experience about a bad guy who was apprehended. It's called I Found the Man Who Shot Me. 46 years later, it was told by Daryl Chiquanta to Guardian Experience. The story goes, I just got myself a chocolate milk and was on my way to pick up a Sunday paper when I saw a Chevy with a male and two females in it. It was October 1971 and I was 21. It was a couple of years into my policing career, working the morning shift in Denver, Colorado, out in a car on my own. The male was wearing a khaki cap and looked like a rough dude. I went to where he was sitting on the passenger side and he gave me his wallet, which had his social security card. We went to the back of the car. I told him to put his hands on the trunk, but he sidestepped me and pulled a gun from his waistband. After a quick tussle, he shot me in my lower chest. I'd never been shot before. My legs gave way. Everything went silent. I don't know. I didn't know if I was going to live or die. In those days, our radios weren't portable, so I had to crawl 20 foot to my car to call for help. I was worried the bullet had gone through my spine. An ambulance came and rushed me to hospital, saving my life. We searched for him, but he had disappeared. The name on the social security turned out to be fake. His real name was Lawrence Pusatieri. A couple of years later, he was caught in Mexico and brought back to Denver, where he was sentenced for nine and a half to 14 years for shooting me. I wasn't angry at him, just glad we'd got him. 
but in 1974 he escaped from prison. He'd been taken to hospital with another inmate where they went to the bathroom and found guns, an accomplice and a car waiting. They took the guards hostage and got away. It wasn't his first prison escape either. When he shot me, he'd been on the run having escaped another prison while serving a sentence for burglary and drug possession. That time he'd put pillows in his bed to make it look as if he was sleeping and somehow broke out. It was like something out of a Hollywood movie. I started looking for him immediately. I met his family and the girls from the car. I talked to informants in prison. I contacted anyone who could possibly know him. But I hit a brick wall after brick wall. People would hang up or tell me I was an asshole. I never got anything out of them, but I kept trying. In the meantime, Pussy Cherry twice appeared on America's Most Wanted, the US show based on BBC's Crime Watch. I got married and had kids, but continued chipping away at the case. I had one tip off in the 1980s, but nothing came of it. It became like a hobby for me. I carried on even after I retired from the police force. My aim was to keep people who knew him talking, and maybe one day it would spark something. For me, it's always been about the chase. On the 24th of June this year, my birthday, I was sitting at the kitchen table when I got a call. A man said, I've been thinking about it and I'm going to tell you where the guy is that shot you. He gave me the name Ramon Montoya and said that he was using it as an alias, an address in Española, New Mexico and the name of his wife. Then he hung up. I was sceptical, but I plugged the name into my databases. I found Ramon Montoya at that address with that woman. Holy shit, I said to myself, this could be him. I put together the information and called the Española police. A lieutenant said he'd get on it. They had trouble getting a warrant, but a week later I discovered that in 2011, Montoya had been arrested for drink driving. I pulled up a mugshot. Uh, the first I had found. It was the guy who shot me. It was Pusa Cherry. He was older, but there was no doubt in my mind I could spot him a mile away. I couldn't get to the phone quick enough. I said to the lieutenant, it's him. I've got his picture and I'm sending it to you. On the 5th of August, I got a call to say that Pusa Cherry had been arrested. He's 77 now and serving his original sentence for shooting me. I'm going to try and see him. I want to congratulate him on staying hidden for 46 years. He did an incredible job of it and had been a formidable foe. That was told by, to Candice Pires of Guardian Experience. I have to say it feels a little bit bittersweet. The guy got away with it and he's 77 now and then he got caught. But on the other hand, he was clearly still up to no good if he'd just been arrested for drink driving as well. I just hope this time they managed to keep him locked up for the proper length of the sentence because they hadn't done a very good job of it before.
The last story for this edition is one sent to me by my mum from um, a correspondent called Ryan McAleer at the Irish News. I thought this was a lovely story to finish up our New Year North America, Northern Ireland edition. It's called A Mourn Love Yarn for the COVID Age. A New York fashion designer whose plans for a big county down wedding were upended by COVID-19 has launched a new creative venture from a Kilkeel sheep farm. Yuri Lee and Thomas Kuhn were originally due to marry in May, with the couple returning to settle in Manhattan to launch a new fashion brand. But with the US closing its borders, the 38-year-old shifted the new business from the Big Apple to a farm in County Down. Love Wonky has now built up a network of local knitters and is generating employment for women in Latin America severely affected by the pandemic. It was never supposed to happen this way, says Yuri, but I'm so glad that it did. We were supposed to start in New York and create clothing with ladies in Bolivia, but what has happened here is so beautiful. Hats and scarves knitted in County Down are now selling for between $80 and $200 in the US, with profits used to generate employment for women in poor communities in South America by training them to make clothing by hand. Women in these communities of Bolivia have not had access to education and really struggled to provide for their children, said the designer. By training them to create beautiful handmade garments, we get them working and join them in transforming their families' lives in a sustainable way. And it all starts here in Mourn with ladies doing what they would be doing anyway, but for purpose. Elizabeth Watterson from Rathfryland has been knitting for Love Wonky since October. She said it's nice to know you can sit on your sofa with your fire lit, knit a wee bit and realise that you're helping another lady in another country, and there's a reward in doing it, a wee satisfaction for yourself. Yuri's background in fashion includes designing roles for DKNY, Anthropology, and Victoria's Secret, but she found the success unfulfilling. I had seen the worst of the fashion industry, and the ways in which people who produce the things we wear are exploited and mistreated, she said. I believed that there was a better way and I wanted to use my experience to help find it. She quit her job and spent six months journeying through Africa and India, encountering different communities of women in India and Kenya. She also found Thomas Kyung. The Kilkeel board man leads a charity providing education and shelter to children in Africa and Latin America. Between them, the idea for Love Wonky was born. The idea first came because of Thomas's grandmother, Sadie, who despite never leaving Northern Ireland, knitted almost every night for 80 years for premature babies in Malawi that she would never meet. I wondered if there might be more Sadies around here, and goodness there were. As for their wedding plans, the couple were eventually married in front of seven members of Thomas's family with two iPhones beaming the ceremony to Yuri's family in Korea. Now known as Yuri Lee Kyung, the designer said she's enjoying her new life in Kilkeel. 
I love it here. The difference between the pace of life and the attitude of people here, I just love. Even the little things like waving at people over the steering wheel when you meet them driving. Wherever Wonky goes, in the decades ahead, it will always be the kindness of Northern Ireland that started it, she said. And that this was also able to provide ladies with something meaningful to do with their time and skill during lockdown is so perfect for what Wonky seeks to be in the world. And now for the quiz again, and we're going to have the answers. But first of all, I have to introduce you to today's guest star, my husband, sometime producer and quizzing partner, Adrian. Say hello. Hey, everybody. <laughs> so Adrian's taking on my role today as the person who has to answer mum's fiendish quiz questions. Now, it's only fair to tell you, I do not have a good um, reputation in this quiz. My scores are generally quite low. So how do you think you're going to do? Oh, that's a, a big build up there for me. So um, I'm going to have to try really hard. <laughs> try really hard. Adrian joined me on Pointless a few years ago. And the pair of us do have a... Um, what do you call it? Pointless trophy. A, a pointless trophy, yes, a coveted pointless trophy that we're very proud of. So, um, But we didn't win the quiz. I don't know how well you're going to do on mum's fiendish questions, but here you go. The first one, question one, Friday the 12th of February is the Chinese Lunar New Year. Which of the following animals represents 2021? Is it A, the rabbit? B, the goat, or C, the ox? I think I will go with the ox, um, but I really do not have a clue which one it is. So. <laughs> yes, I frequently have to guess. You're totally right. The ox represents 2021. Well done. Hey. The ox occupies the second position in the Chinese zodiac and occurs every 12th year. Those born from the 12th of February will be under the ox sign and will be strong, reliable, fair and conscientious, inspiring confidence in others. But they are self-opinionated despite the fact that they don't talk a lot. They find it difficult to accept failure and hate being challenged. Those born before the 12th of February will still be under last year's sign of the rat. Other years of the ox were 61, 73, 85, 97 and 2009. If you were born in January or February in any given Chinese New Year, you need to check the date of the New Year in order to determine the sign of the animal into which you were born. I, my darling husband, am an ox as well. So funny enough, I was just about to say that sounded as if it fitted you perfectly. It does. Strong, reliable, fair, conscientious. Or were you looking at the self-opinionated bit? I was thinking more along the self-opinionated <laughs> bit. Question two. What ancient civilization started the tradition of New Year's resolutions? Was it the Romans, Babylonians or the Aztecs? Ooh, ancient civilizations. Um, I think that that would be the Romans. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh -uh. Answer B, 
The Babylonians are believed to be the first people to practice New Year's resolutions some 4,000 years ago. They were also the first to hold recorded celebrations for the New Year. Though for them it didn't begin in January, it was held in mid-March when the crops were planted. During a massive 12-day religious festival known as a Kitu, a new king was crowned or the old one reaffirmed. Promises were made to the gods to repay debts and return borrowed objects. If they kept their word, the gods bestowed favour for the coming year. But if they failed to keep their promises, they fell afoul of the gods, a place that nobody wanted to find themselves in. Did they find themselves returning a lot of lawnmowers? <laughs> Why would there be lawnmowers? Because usually people borrow lawnmowers and don't give them back. Oh, that's the most borrowed thing in your book? It is, yeah. <laughs> Question three was, at the time of Christ's birth, January the 6th, known as the Feast of the Epiphany, three wise men visited him. One was Melchior, another Balthazar. What was the third one called? And your options were Bashir, Jasper, or Gasper. Now, I knew the first two. Melchior and Balthazar. Yep. Yeah, the third one, he's the, the one that nobody can remember his name. Um, but I'm going to go with the one that has a connection to uh, Battlestar Galactic. Who? Which is both. What was the first one you gave up? Ah, uh, you had Bashir, Bashir, Jasper, or Gasper. I'll go for Bashir. Uh, uh, oh. No. This is fiendishly difficult. It is a fiendish quiz. It's answer C. The name of the third wise man or Magi is Gasper, who is also known as Casper. The Bible is silent on how many wise men or Magi, from where we get the word magician, visited Jesus. They were probably wealthy, influential and well-educated scholars of the Hebrew scriptures concerning the prophecy of Daniel regarding the appearance of the Messiah. The star they were following is thought to have been Halley's Comet, which was in an unusual conjunction with the other planets. So one out of three so far. Yes. Question four. Which foodstuff is thought to be unlucky to eat in the new year? Is it lobster, pork, or black-eyed peas? Well, I know. <laughs> I know, speaking from experience, that if I ate lobster, it would be extremely unlucky. That would be very unlucky. Quite correct. It is unlucky for anyone to eat lobster on New Year's Day because it moves either sideways or backwards, which it tends to do through your constitution as well. That's right. Let the whole world know <laughs> about my constitution. A similar superstition applies to crabs and fishier bottom feeders like crayfish. The idea is that one shouldn't become a bottom feeder or go backwards instead of moving forward and looking outwards in the new year. Just right. Final question. Question five. What famous novel was published on January the 1st, 1818? Was it Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, or Dracula by Bram Stoker? Ooh. Ah, three. Three very well-renowned Gothic novels. I don't think Dorian Gray, so I'll pass on that one. Um, and it's between 
Frankenstein or Dracula? I think I'll go with Frankenstein. <laughs> Correct. Well done. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was published anonymously in London on January the 1st, 1818. It wasn't until the second published edition in 1823 that she was named as the author. Shelley started to write the story aged 18 while she was travelling in Germany and Switzerland in the company of her future husband, Percy Shelley, and Lord Byron. The novella came about when the companions held a competition between themselves as to who could write the best horror story. She dreamed up a scientist who created life and was horrified at what he'd made. The picture of Dorian Gray was published in 1890, while Dracula by the Irish writer Stoker was published in 1897. Ooh. So by my account, I think you got two, three out of five. Was I shortchanging you? Oh, you I was. Know. Yes, so three out of five. Well done. That just about um, reaches my best totals as well. I normally manage to get a few right, but... Is it that is your a, personal best? Three, it is, is it? indeed a fiendish quiz, it is, is it not? It is totally fiendish. Yes, well, all credit to my mum, Flo, of the Amy and Flo Show, who writes these fiendish quizzes and gives us all of the information to go with them as well. Well, that's all we have time for in this New Year's edition of the Amy and Flo Talking Magazine Show. I hope you enjoyed that selection of stories and articles, some of them that my mum found and some that I found, but we hope they were all perfectly entertaining for you. Hopefully next time in February when we're back, things will return to normal and my mum will be back by my side. I hope that we'll have your company on the Amy and Flo Talking Magazine show in the year to come. If you do like our podcast, please subscribe. Please tell your friends about it. For now, until we're back in February, I wish you all a very happy new year.